0: Welcome to the Cork Report podcast. I'm Len Thompson, founder of the Cork Report media empire, such that it is. I'll have my first episode of my own podcast on this stream, which I'm calling Press Fraction, later this week. But in the meantime, today I'm excited to introduce the second episode of my colleague Paul Brady's podcast, Northern Wine Odyssey. This time out, he talks with our mutual friend, Gina Shea, about jobs in the wine industry that might not be as obvious as things like winemaker or tasting room manager. Gina is just an incredible person with a varied career in wine but again, in roles that might not be as obvious to people who want to work in wine. With the COVID-19 pandemic putting a lot of restaurant and even winery employees out of work, I think it's more important than ever to share this sort of information, so let's uh, let's get to it. This is Paul Brady's Northern Wine Odyssey, Episode 2 with Gina Shea, sponsored by, well, we're not sponsored by anybody, all in due time though.
1: Enjoy. The Northern Wine Odyssey series is a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. To listen, just search Cork Report Podcast in Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, plus, plus, plus. Shout out to Cork Report founder Len Thompson and all the readers and listeners. Please send us a note or leave a comment as to what you'd like to hear us rap about in the future. My name is Paul Brady. I'm a content contributor at Cork Report. And today I'll be speaking with my friend Gina Shea who works in business development for Cadu Oak Barrels, and is also vice president of the Michigan Wine Collaborative. This talk is meant to explore the job possibilities that exist in the wine industry that may not be obvious to all. Over the summer, with so many of my restaurant industry peers unfortunately out of work, I began recording Instagram live sessions with those in my network who I found had something to say on the subject of finding work. People like Kathy Huehy, who is the CEO of Enolytics, which analyzes wine industry data. Mary Gorman McAdams, director of the International Wine Center in New York City. Natalie Grindstaff, national beverage director of Tom Colicchio's Crafted Hospitality, and more. And those can be found archived over at the Cork Report or at my personal Instagram feed, at Lake I think Gina's job would be highly appealing to restaurant sommeliers, as it involves a lot of travel, a lot of tasting, and a lot of one-on-one with some of the country's top winemakers. All right, here we go. Thank you to guitarist and composer Dave Miller for the Music, check him out at DaveMillerGuitar.com or wherever you buy or stream music. Gina Shea, good morning.
0: Hey, Paul, how are you?
1: I'm well. I have to say that I really like this 10 a.m. start time because it's everyone's always like, oh, it's a wine podcast. Let's do it in the evening and we'll have a drink. But uh, this is this has just got a different vibe, and I'm digging it over coffee.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. We're we're not tasting anything. Uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully it's better than you know, say Folgers or or some uh, canned coffee. But <laughs> we're we're it not is. having any. No no corks popping over here quite yet.
1: I've got um, coffee from Irving Farm, which is up here in the Hudson Valley, and is pretty well known at like restaurants in New York City too. What is your what is your morning what is your morning uh, beverage?
0: I am I am also drinking a local coffee from uh, the west side of Michigan from Shul coffee.
1: All right. So Michigan, my home state, your adopted home state. Yes. I don't know if you are aware of this, but I was very upset when they officially changed the state's tourism slogan to Pure Michigan from Great Lakes, Great Times, because I just thought that Great Lakes, Great Times was just a much better party.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, that's an interesting point because I know that in our wine conversations, we've talked about how important the Great Lakes region is as a whole. Um, It would be nice to, to keep something like that in our state slogan, because I think that this area um, in addition to a lot of the other Great Lakes states are stronger together. But I was not put in charge of that marketing program.
1: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, they also spent, I don't know, a million plus dollars on that Pure Michigan advertising campaign when it came out. I mean, I saw ads in the New York City subways.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. And I have to say, before I even moved to Michigan, that campaign was probably one of the farthest reaching uh, single state campaigns I've ever seen it, because I was I lived in New York prior to this and I grew up in Indiana and those commercials were everywhere um and like you said on a New York City train you wouldn't imagine that it would be there but it was in those those ads were in very creative places too um to reach pretty much everybody and now that I'm working with the Michigan Wine Collaborative I'm supremely jealous of their budget <laughs> because um which which has subsequently actually had a little bit of a decrease because of um the crazy times we're living in um but prior to that i think it was a fantastic campaign
1: well i, I don't think michigan ever got as much national recognition uh, aside from that campaign until mm, this year until i don't know maybe today
0: <laughs> yeah there you know michigan has been getting some some unusual recognition um we, we are recording this on
1: monday the <laughs> uh, november 23rd the day that michigan is slated to certify their election result
0: yeah yeah and i i think you know everybody everybody has a lot of election fatigue so i'm hoping we can just do do something and move past it um but yeah i i wish that that michigan would get more attention for um certainly this year's for the wines that are here, uh, for obviously Michigan is, has, gotten previous attention for tourism. Um, this is one of the most widely toured States, certainly when people are coming on domestic vacations from the U S this is one of their possible destinations. So, um, it's pretty much, you know, we're, it's a peninsula in the middle of lakes that is also filled with lakes. So if you, if you're a lake person, Michigan is your place.
1: And then, and then, when you go up to the like sort of premier vinifera grape growing spots, it's a peninsula at the end of a peninsula.
0: Yes, there is no shortage of water. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh,
1: all right, um, which I of really...
0: course it lets us grow grapes. So you know, at the at the end of the day, it's it's a good thing. Um, it does not make travel easy, though. It's there are no one of the things that that I do miss about some of my previous locations were more ease of getting around. Um the lakes are beautiful, but very few of them have bridges over them. <laughs> so get you so you have to go around and it's it's a lot. But it is also uh, you know, a benefit and a curse, I guess.
1: Well, and I, I gotta I gotta give a shout out to the Michigan State flag because <laughs> I just think it's it's so perfectly northern. And there's a Latin <laughs> phrase on it, which I believe translates to if you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you, right? That's
0: about right. Yes. You don't have to go very far. Um, yeah. and it's funny I'm located, I'm, I'm fairly landlocked where I am. Um, there are, there are lots of small lakes of course, because the entire um, state is peppered with them, but, um, I'm in Southeast Michigan near, I considered mes- Metro Detroit and, um, our closest large body of water is Lake St. Clair. Uh, and then, of course, the Detroit River is, is pretty significant because there are a few people actually growing grapes near there. Uh, it's it's warm enough to, to temper that um, climate. But uh, we have this bizarre little microclimate pocket of fantastic weather. And I remember moving here from upstate New York and thinking I had moved to San Diego because... It was warm. It wasn't humid. It, it, it was beautiful weather, lots of sun in the winter. Um, and I know that a lot of native Michiganders will argue with me that the weather isn't that fantastic, but it's all relative.
1: Well, so I want to I touch on what you just said. So you are originally from New York. Where exactly did you grow up?
0: I'm actually I'm originally from Indiana, so I I grew up in Northwest Indiana in Chicagoland. So basically, the Gary, Merrillville, Highland, Sherrill area. Which if you've driven west um, across Highway ninety from New York across the practically the entire United States, um, you'll pass through that area. So I grew up there uh, in Northwest Indiana and um, went to college at Indiana University, Bloomington. Then shortly thereafter. Um, Worked a couple of years in the Indianapolis area and moved to Rochester, New York for a job. Um, not in the wine industry, but I fell in love with upstate New York because the people were so nice. I really hadn't encountered such open, genuine people who were immediately willing to give you the shirt off their back. It was a little bit disconcerting at first because people were so kind. Um, not that they're not kind in Indiana, it was just New York, upstate New York took it to a whole other level. So um, I spent 15 years there uh, before moving to Michigan and started my wine career actually in the Finger Lakes. So it was a, a, an auspicious location to have chosen uh, for the first non-wine industry job because then shortly thereafter, uh, in 2002, I started working in the Finger Lakes uh, with that wine industry. So it's been a little bit of a, a traveling situation. Michigan is my third state. Um, but here we are. Luckily, Michigan okay, also so, produces wine.
1: <laughs> so post-college adult, mm-hmm. Gina. Yes. You are in upstate New York.
0: Yes. Yep. I was selling copiers and fax machines. So very different, uh, situation than wine.
1: And upstate New Yorkers will know that that's a hot spot for that type of work.
0: Yes. Yeah. It, and and it, ironically, I was not working for Xerox or, um, Kodak, which were the two places there that actually did manufacture some copiers and imaging equipment. Um, But it is an imaging hotspot. And so it was easy to talk to people about copiers and fax machines, because they had grown up with those industries there.
1: So then, did wine become a hobby prior to a profession?
0: Not really. I mean, I drank wine. I my my first favorite wine was seasons in the blue bottle from bully hill <laughs> so as a young adult in rochester new york whenever i found that at the grocery store or liquor store i was like woohoo my favorite <laughs> here it is and um so that was pretty much it i had i had consumed a few um australian wines i remember you know kind of shopping in the 6 to 8 dollar range and would leave with um, Rosemount Shiraz and some seasons from Bully Hill and I was all set. So that was kind of my exposure to wine at that point. Um, I did know about the Finger Lakes wine industry. I had gone on several wine tours, um, but I hadn't attempted to study wine at all before I got a call from a (laughs) headhunter.
1: So, so when was that? When were you first checking out the Finger Lakes on what, whether it was on your own or some sort of guided tour?
0: It was about two thousand I would say um nineteen ninety nine two thousand where I had just what
1: was the region like then,
0: oh my gosh, it was nothing like it is now, I mean it's still very it still has that quaint feel now, but um so many of the regional epicenters were not developed, for example geneva um Geneva now is this itty bitty micro metropolis um in the finger lakes, but it has such wonderful culture and, and restaurants. And back in 2000, um, and especially what I remember starting with starting my wine career in 2002, there was, there were very few places to eat and very few places to make a pit stop. <laughs> it was really, um, very, very even more rural than it is now. So, um, things have changed quite a bit. And I would say, I think at the time, oh my gosh, maybe there were, 75 wineries? I'd have to go back and look, but there were many fewer than there are today.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you are driving the length of Seneca Lake on the West side, not once upon a time, but not that long ago, make sure you got a full tank of gas and don't think you're stopping for a coffee. And it's a longer yeah. drive than you than you remember.
0: Yes <laughs> it becomes it becomes it's very always loud. like,
1: oh, I'm just gonna uh, you get zip right down to Watkins. I'll be there in like fifteen minutes now <laughs>
0: yeah it and that's the thing is you have to it, budgeting the time talking about lakes that don't have bridges over over the center of them um when I first started working in the Finger Lakes, I wished every day that there were a bridge across Seneca Lake and Cayuga Lake. um it would have made certain trips much more um palatable just because. Uh, a lot of time and territory management goes into it, but um, it's actually now with the way the lakes are are situated and the number of wineries that are on each of the Finger Lakes, um, there are it, – it's very easy for me when people say, I want to do a wine tour, this is how much time I have, to tell them, okay, just do the west side of Seneca Lake today. Believe me, you'll have plenty of places to visit. They will be awesome. Um, it, there is something for everybody right on that route Et cetera or I could pick another side of a lake um it, it, it's now that it has has built up to something that doesn't take driving 300 miles in a day um I think it's it's
1: much more user friendly well and you know we just run late to everything nowadays <laughs> in, the, in the finger lakes it's commonly accepted
0: it, yeah people understand I mean if it's not the weather it's just the the sheer geography of it
1: Mhm. Okay, so that's a really interesting time to start hanging out there. So you you mentioned that your job is basically what got you into wine on a professional level. So you you began in the industry without really having um any sort of semi-serious interest in wine yet. So how did the your your approach to tasting and understanding wine coincide with with the beginning of of this new profession,
0: oh my gosh, it was completely learning from winemakers because I was working for a California company and I had had a little bit of training i uh, was the initial job was selling corks uh capsules, screw caps, and other packaging, and therefore um at that time, a lot of companies had not really even considered quote unquote the East Coast as a viable wine region um in order to, to to have a local rep or to spend their time there. Most of the time those com- companies that were almost all based in California, some in France and, and other places in Europe would not really uh spend the time and money to have a have feet on the ground. They would come once a year or not even and just handle everything by phone. So to have someone locally Living locally and um, experiencing the wine industry every day was something new for me and for the region. But um, I trained two months in California and learned a little bit from my colleagues there about wine tasting and what was um, expected. And I remember going through training on how to open wine bottles because they had had people who. Really didn't have wine experience before, try to be in front of a customer and not be able to open a wine bottle. So, some of my, I, I trained for three months and my practice was, you know, opening bottles, being on a bottling line, working in packaging of the, of the packaging materials um, in our warehouse. So, I got a, a good sense of, I guess I, I, my, I jumped in with, with both feet. Um, when I came back though, really understanding the lingo and understanding how to taste what was all learning from the winemakers and on my own. So, um, again, winemakers are very passionate people. They're usually there because they want to be there, which was a huge change from calling on people, um, selling copiers and fax machines because so many of the people that I talked to hated their jobs. They hated life. <laughs> they didn't want to be there. And it's really, it was really tough. So, um, Coming into this this new situation where winemakers were very open to sharing, they wanted to tell me everything. Uh, it was fantastic. So I pretty much learned from my customers. I let them know I was new, I was fresh, and I needed instruction, and they took it from there.
1: I think that's a a really good point that you made, which is you learn how to taste from winemakers, not other sommeliers or retail employees or whatever. That was. One of the first lessons I learned working with Pascaline Lepeltier, mm-hmm. I, I went to her to, to, to work for her at Rouge Tomat back in 2016, specifically because I wanted to become a better taster. And she had this incredible reputation and was also very open-minded in, in terms of just wine in general. She, was, she had a super open mind for New York, for Michigan, for Canada. Not, not every beverage director did, certainly. And her, her thing was, you have to taste with winemakers. Don't taste with other, I mean, taste with other sommeliers, but to really learn, you need to go taste with winemakers. And that was one of something that she would ask aspiring sommeliers who wanted to work with her in a job interview, what, what wine regions have you visited? And if, if they said, well, I haven't had that opportunity yet, that was the wrong answer. Because mm-hmm. her next statement was going to be, you know, there are wineries in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, exactly. Can, They're you everywhere. You can go to Red Hook. <laughs> There's no excuses, You can go no. to
1: Brooklyn Winery. You know, you're right. Absolutely no excuse. And she really looked for people that took the time to, to to get to know wineries and winemakers to learn how to taste in that sort of absolute way so that you know what's going on in the wine so you're not just, you know, sort of spouting off fruit salad adjectives when you're describing a wine, which I I suppose can be helpful, but more often than not, that can be a little confusing, I find. So that was always, I always sort of under respected the way that she critiqued wine because, I mean, if you've ever tasted with her, especially with her and other winemakers, winemakers have told me that woman must be the best taster in the world. Like she could probably go and make wine right now, and Mm -hmm. that's why I think people take opinions from someone like that seriously because they know everything that's going on in the wine, like to the decimal point. Like it's scary. I I, I have some. Sometimes I would see her, you know, ask a question about a wine, and the winemaker would be like, "Wow, you're you're right. I didn't even know that." Um, And I think it's a great way. To really learn how to taste because when you know scientifically and chemically what's going on in the wine, you know why you like it or why you don't like it. And other and and then people will agree or disagree with you, but at least you're you're backing up your opinion with with you know what literally is going on in the bottle of wine.
0: Yeah. And it it, it is really two different worlds. And that was it's funny because um, when I wanted to switch from selling packaging to selling barrels because of the tasting aspect, um, I started studying under the court of master sommeliers and um, did a CSW certification. I wanted to get something outside of my uh, hands-on education from winemakers. But that was so eye-opening because it is... It, the, the deductive tasting method, um, specifically from the, the CMS, is very helpful um, in identifying things that are in the wine. But one of the things that I noticed that was glaring in that training was not what shouldn't be in the wine. And that's what winemakers look for. Winemakers look for things that stick out that aren't supposed to be there. <laughs> and that has been so helpful to me when I'm tasting. Either way, whether I'm tasting with a bunch of sommeliers or I'm, I'm tasting with uh, production people. Because winemakers, first and foremost, are looking for faults. They're looking for, is this wine oxidized? Is there botanomyces? Is there volatile acidity? And that is not at all the case, what I found, typically, when I've tasted with other sommeliers. Most of the time, um, those faults might be considered character by people who are are not necessarily in production. So um, it's a very interesting difference, and I'm glad that I started on the production side. I'm glad that I learned that first because um, it, even judging at wine competitions, um, when I was at the New York Classic in 2019, uh, there I was at a table with two very talented people, um, but we had a couple conversations about volatile acidity and what it is and, and why, you know, why they might've wanted to give it a higher score than I did because I said, well, this is technically, um, a flaw. This is not something that's supposed to be there. And the other people at the table thought that it lent some character and brightness and, um, more fruity esters to the wine. So it, it, it is definitely relative. Um, but the, tasting with those two groups is is kind of fun. And when they get together, there's definitely going to be a lot of conversation. That's for sure.
1: Well, and I think another edge that the sort of front of house uh, wine professionals may have over winemakers, and you'll certainly be able to speak to this, is that winemaking regions, when it comes to tasting, it's very insular. You mm-hmm. have winemakers who so often are only tasting their wines and the wines of their neighbors. And I've come to learn that that is something that is not at all unique to to New York, but that happens pretty much everywhere. Is that can, do you agree with that in your experience? Absolutely.
0: Oh yes, yeah, the the biggest thing that that I, I would warn any winemaker is please don't get cellar palate. Please be in a tasting group where you not only taste each other's wines and critique them, but taste them in relation to the wines of the world. And and sometimes not even in relation to the wines of the world, just for fun. Uh, you know, it, having um, a palate that is not geared just toward uh, one region is beneficial for everybody because then you can tell if you're really making wine that's good because at the end of the day, you have to sell it. It has to be um, desirable, drinkable. Um, and comparing it only to what's already in your cellar or what is happening in your region is selling yourself short and, and not benefiting the consumer either. So um, that is probably the number one on my list of advice that I would ever give anybody making wine.
1: And so how did you transition from that first supplier job to oak barrels?
0: Well, the supplier that I was working for built a cooperage. So that helped because I was able to train a little bit and start understanding um, oak flavor and aroma markers, as well as uh, fruit characteristics. So um, it really helped to to kickstart that interest in being able to taste. Now, one of the things that I encountered, though, was people saying, well, you're the cork lady. I, I don't I'm not going to take barrel advice from you. So that's why I decided on my own to start certifying through third parties because I had what I thought was a pretty good palette, but I also wanted to verify that um, objectively. So um, that was the first step, I guess, was to, to be in Oak, even though it was just a small part of my expected forecast with the company I was working for. Basically, because they didn't really think that there was much of a market in the East Coast for that kind of thing um, and that's that's kind of an interesting thing when you work for a West Coast company, so often, especially twenty years ago, they really didn't understand what was happening on the East Coast or nor the potential of of what was going to happen and so um, having been feet on the ground, I really understood that certainly the wine regions east of uh sierra nevada <laughs> were were certainly viable and um decided to to plunge into oak full-time so in 2015 i opened a company called Petrea plus which was dedicated specifically to cool climate oak because one of the complaints i had when i worked with the other company was that we didn't it was really geared toward you know low Infidel. it wasn't or 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 Napa Cab. It was not geared toward um, the kind of wines that were being made on the East Coast at the time. So I saw that niche opportunity, started my company, and um, carried products that were geared specifically toward wines that possibly didn't need a lot of oak aromatic character, but were looking possibly for some structure instead. And how to manipulate oak so that it wasn't the first thing that you taste in the glass at all. Um, or if there even were any oak characteristics, but that it lent to the development of the f- and the framing and lifting of the fruit, because that was the strength in the East Coast. So uh, I did that for a while and partnered with Tanellery Caduce, which wh- with whom I work now full time, um, and realized that I was spending most of my time selling their barrels because they're fantastic barrels. So I approached them in late 2018, early 2019 and said, hey, um, I'm spending 95% of my time on your barrels. Do you want to make this official? (laughs) So they did. Um, And we have a a good working philosophy. Um, The team is fantastic. And they're possibly the most customer-centric company that I've ever worked with. Uh, I've always had the philosophy of really listening to and responding to my customers and anticipating their needs. Um, it's not rocket science. It, it shouldn't be. Um, and that sp- those investments in customer service and the customer experience will yield greater sales down the road. Um, and Caduce also shares that philosophy as well. So um, having that connection is, uh, benefits all. It benefits us and, and certainly our customers.
1: I want to go back and touch on something that you mentioned there because I think it's really smart. A number of people that I correspond with throughout this pandemic rightfully talk about what their next job might be. And I hear it phrased such as, where am I going to work? Where am I going to work? And my thinking has always been not where am I going to work? Where do I want to work? I don't know why, but I never had any restaurant jobs that I, you know, followed a Craigslist link to or Star Chefs or anything like that. I always just thought, I really love this place. I want to go and work there. So, whatever, even if they didn't have a job at the time, I would just try to get in touch with somebody on the inside to sort of express interest, and then when the time would come, maybe I'd uh, maybe I'd be able to pounce on that opportunity. And what you mentioned there was sort of exactly that. You were doing some essentially like freelance work with one company in particular, and then you sort of created your own job by calling them up and saying, hey, let's do this. And I just think that that is a great example of thinking hard about what you want to do where you want to work, because it makes sense, and then you went after it, could you talk a little bit about that process?
0: Oh, absolutely. And if there's any industry in which this is a good idea, it's the wine industry because it's very small. Um as you know, i mean it's it's very easy to get a close friend network going of about a thousand people <laughs> it's which in in relation to the world population is quite small. But to to move in similar circles, and there's always six degrees or fewer of separation between people in the wine industry. So, chances are, if there's something that you'd like to do, you can create it yourself in in many places. Um, Again, I I I think that um, when I was working with Caduce, I specifically chose them when I was looking when I started my oak company. I was looking specifically for suppliers that made oak uh products, barrels and or octor- uh, alternatives uh that go into the barrel or go into tanks and and lend some of, somewhat of an oak character to wines. Um that would complement what I wanted to accomplish, which was working with specifically wines outside of California, Oregon and Washington at that time. And um so okay, the, Caduce was on the short list, and I actually knew one of their salespeople from my previous company. He had moved around a little bit in the oak world, and I called him. He had called me a few years ago asking if I were interested in working with him at a different company, and I said, "No, no, no everything's great. Um, not ready for any moves yet." And then when I started my company, and I knew the kind of barrels that he was selling, I contacted him and said, "Hey, you still looking for someone on the East Coast?" And he said. I don't know. I this is uh, he was with a new company, of course, but he said, um, "I know your experience. I know that you have relationships with hundreds of customers in that area, and so you could certainly hit the ground running with some relationships." And that's how it came to be. So I we we started off with a um, a diet contract. I would say like a a little deal memo, basically saying, "Here's what we think." you can sell. Here's what you've committed to thinking you can sell. Let's give it a shot. And nobody really had anything to lose at that point. And um, I think that was obviously a big part of it. Um, If you can establish a relationship with an organization and demonstrate that you can already do the job that you're trying to create for yourself, it's kind of a no-brainer because they don't really have to have a huge investment. Um, And so when I, I talk to people about sales specifically if there's a product that interests them um they can try it on a commission basis just saying hey there's no additional investment on your part let me go and see what I can do and if i can build a following and build relationships with people and there seems to be a good uh mutually beneficial situation for all of us then down the road let's consider other things but um at first, it it doesn't hurt to say, hey, I, I have this in mind. What do you think?
1: Well, and I remember when I first, when we first got to know each other and I started following you on social media, you were traveling quite a bit. And you were traveling in particular to a lot of regions that were interesting to me. So obviously New York, mm-hmm. Finger Lakes, Long Island. You were in Virginia Fairmount. Uh, Ontario, the Niagara Peninsula, places emerging, upcoming regions in places like Ohio. I used to joke that so many of these regions in northeastern North America didn't really get much attention from the wine trade in New York City because what's one of the reasons that that young people get into wine? I I really believe it's because of the, the travel opportunities that it that it offers. And you know, going to these Rust Belt North American wine regions, not quite as alluring as going to Corsica or Alto Piemonte, um, which and that has changed uh, over the last couple of years. I've noticed um, uh, um, just people singing a much different tune about our beloved uh, northeastern wine regions here. But what are the regions that you are regularly visiting? uh once you started this sort of full-time gig for Kadoo.
0: Oh my gosh, it, it it's, it's it's pretty funny because it's such a stark contrast to what's happening now, which is me basically sitting in my basement all day every day talking to people on Zoom or on the phone. But usually what normally occurs is um I would be traveling every other week. Um so at least 2 weeks a month, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less. Um, but yeah to to pretty much every wine region where everybody else is not going, so shh do not give away my secrets that I'm <laughs> traveling to these emerging regions that sometimes haven't historically been considered viable wine region by the quote unquote experts and that's and i I certainly say that in quotations because um everybody of course has their their different view of what constitutes good wine. there are certain uh, objective measures and then. Otherwise, if if areas are able to sell wine, then they're a viable region. So um, I have traveled. My first part of my territory um, in 2002 started out as just New York State. Um, the, the company for whom I was working was based in uh, California, and they had pretty much only heard of New York <laughs> making wine outside of California. And so... Um, That was where I started with most of my time to be spent in the Finger Lakes, and then maybe once every month or once every two months, a visit to Long Island. And as I became more well-versed in the East Coast uh, North American industry, I approached my company and said, hey, uh, if you guys are willing to put a little bit more in my travel budget, there's wine being made in Ontario and in Virginia. And... uh, at the time I held off on visiting Ontario much because SARS was just happening. So that kind of rings, you know, rings true in today's climate. So I I held off on on spending a lot of time there and started visiting Virginia. And of course, Virginia is is such a, a project unto itself because they're making fantastic wine in many areas of the state. But unless you have like two and a half weeks solid. Uh, to be on the road visiting uh, wineries, you cannot see them all in quick succession. So um, because they're scattered all over the place, there are mountains in between, so you have the terrain to deal with. Um, But yeah, so I I started spending at least uh, a week, a quarter, if not more frequently in the beginning in Virginia. And then, um, of course, being from the Chicagoland area, I started calling on wineries in Chicagoland. I want to say in about mm, mid-2000s, there were uh, Cooper's Hawk vineyards and Winery started. And they have since become a humongous success that is at, at making at least a half a million cases of wine. But when I started calling on them, they were making about 7,500 cases um, right at first. And I want to say that was in 2007 or so. Um And so I started calling. I had a reason to go to Indiana, Chicago to see my family and to call on Cooper's Hawk. So I started calling on the wineries in the uh, Midwest in that region Illinois, Indiana. Um, Currently, my territory is everything from uh, everything in North America except Oregon, Washington, California, and Mexico. So I handle all of Canada. Uh, including BC. And um, I now handle Washington State. So that's been kind of, that has been my biggest uh, learning curve is West Coast wines. Because for 20 years, I've been focusing on the wines of the East Coast, whether they are vinifera wines or hybrid wines or native grape wines. Um, Because I've had everything from, uh, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon, of course, or Cab Franc to Marquette to um all the muscadine wines that they're making in in some of the southern states because that's where they grow so it's it's really i look at my i don't want to say backward but the way i reverse engineered my wine experience was to learn emerging regions first and then start to figure out where i was in the wine world um so that i would ha- and again i i i am i put the same rule on myself as i would for winemakers so as not to have a cellar palette or a regional palette. I thought that in addition to um, quantifying the flavors that I was tasting uh, through the CMS training and some of the other uh, deductive tasting methods was to make sure that I understood the, the greater world of wine because I had spent so much time just on the East Coast.
1: So some great wines have been produced on the East Coast, in New York, in general, f- for a long time. I mean, I one of the coolest things that I've been able to take part in has been tasting library wines and older wines, particularly red wines from from New York, from wineries like, or even um, like traditional method sparkling wines going back to the '80s and '90s from like Dr. Frank, Glenora, uh, Cabernets and Merlots from Long Island, from the Hargraves, from Lens from Pomonac, from Wolfer, stunning wines. Um, Pinot Noir and Cabernet Franc from Millbrook in the Hudson Valley going back to the late 90s. So there, there have definitely been some amazing wines. And, and this is one of the most fun fun things for me to do is to, to go out and search for, for these library wines. But we both know that for a very long time, some very less than desirable red wines have been made in this region, and you might say it was because of underripe fruit and too much oak. Mm -hmm. Where along the way did you start to notice, or I guess I should say when, did viticulture in particular for red wine grapes start to improve, and how did oak barrel usage change?
0: Oh, gosh. I would say...
1: And I ask this now because I think we're both probably loving what's going on with red wine in Northeastern North America, whether it's you know Gamay and Pinot Noir from Ontario or Michigan or Cabernet Franc from the Finger Lakes or Merlot from Long Island or Marquette from Vermont or New York or whatever. I mean, there are some delicious, lighter red wines that are the kind of wines that probably you and I like to drink that are that oh, yeah. are going on right now but it was not always so.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, Eastern North America is at the top of my list for red wines because they are they're they're palatable, they're easy to drink with food. You don't need a knife and fork to cut through them. They are um friendly to sip on their own and um just delightful. So, yes. Uh I, I th- you're right because I remember um I remember back in 2000 when I was new to Finger Lakes wine and I was just taking my own little wine tours around the lakes, um, with the very few wineries that were there, that the wine was definitely different from what I had tasted compared to like a Rosemount Shiraz, of course. So that was my first introduction really to cool climate wines and to understanding, oh, this is, this is very different. Um, unfortunately some people's education doesn't get much past that. And they, they say, oh, these wines are not like the, uh, the big reds that I'm used to having at Outback Steakhouse. So I'm I don't like these. These, these are not my thing. Um, so I certainly, um, that I would say that the, the way those red wines started to change in the way they were made. And, and I, I think I should say that they changed to honor what they were. They, they tried to stop, they, they stopped trying to be Napa and they stopped trying to be France. Uh, you know, so they weren't, they, they they weren't trying to sell themselves as Bordeaux or some other region. And I think that's when things finally um cemented for them. I think it it finally, people finally said, let's stop trying to imitate other regions and play to our strengths. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with uh Johannes Reinhardt at one point. And he made it very clear. He said, I'm don't I'm not going to make anything in imitation of anybody else because it is. Not true to the grape. It's not true to the region, and it results in subpar wines. And I think that was probably in two thousand four or five. And he was right. And it was. I would say around that time, when I started noticing some change in thinking of let's stop trying to imitate other regions by pouring too much oak on these wines. Um, which just clobbered the fruit. It absolutely clobbered the fruit. And also um, growing varieties that made sense in the climate. So that – I want to say it probably started changing around – between 2005 and 2012, I saw some major changes. And thank goodness because every region, as we know, when they – and this is why wine regions now are so – they're chasing the, the perfect grapes to grow because when the grapes grow well, then guiding them through the cellar process with minimal intervention, whatever your wine philosophy is, whether it's being a natty winemaker and not interfering at all, or making traditional um, traditionally processed red wines, or I think everybody wins when you're growing the right grapes. And so I would say that, that during that time period, about 10, 15 years ago, was... When people started to change their philosophy to play to their strengths instead of try to imitate other regions?
1: So, I am going to confess that I have very limited experience tasting or drinking wine from Virginia or Maryland. Mm-hmm. I was in DC last year for a conference and I would have to get my notes out. There was um, a really delicious sparkling wine that was made from Muscat from Maryland that I had at a restaurant. And, you know, I can think of a couple of others that have been uh, really pleasant, but overall, I one of the things over the next year I think that I want to do is, is try to start tasting more wines from, from down there. What can you tell us about how that part of the country has changed over the last, let's say, 10 years in terms of their viticulture and how they're marketing their wines, how they're getting them out there?
0: Well, I think they've they've also learned the lesson of playing to their strengths because at one point because Oregon was having such success with Pinot Noir and branding that as their state grape, um Virginia, which has always had a fairly healthy um wine association budget, state wine association budget, um bless them because I again with the Michigan Wine Collaborative, I'm I'm envious of of what they can spend. They launched a very extensive marketing campaign um, for Viognier. And certainly in, in Virginia, they had a similar history to viticulture in New York in that they grew um, some vinifera grapes, some hybrid grapes, some native grapes. Uh, and we're still kind of waiting to figure out which ones were the best and which worked the best with with consumers and wine buyers alike, because the wine buyers have to like the wine before they can Choose it to put in their their retail or wholesale situation, and then get it to the consumers. So um, they initially launched. I want to say, oh gosh, probably about fifteen years ago, maybe twelve. The Viognier campaign that Viognier was from Virginia, and this was their best grape. The thing about Viognier is that most American wine drinkers are not familiar with it. They don't know what it's like, um, and it's a unique grape it it kind of reminds me in, of gewürztraminer in its florality and spiciness um certainly it's a a heavier more unctuous grape um in the glass but it's one of those things where if consumers are not used to it it can be a pretty strong introduction into wine and so um after a couple of years they said you know and, and Personally, as a wine drinker from Virginia, two of my favorite wines from that area are Petit Verdot and Petit Monsang, also varietal grapes that Americans are not typically used to drinking, but I thought they were so much better than most of the Virginia Viognes that I had had. And so um, when you start to think about the the types of grapes, the the breadth of uh, variety that Virginia can foster with their climate, um, they soon learned that Viognier is such an unusual grape that it wasn't an easy sell to consumers. Um, Just because they had chosen that as the state grape didn't mean that every winemaker was going to do it well. And so with those two major realizations, they backed away from that. They just kind of quietly backed away from Virginia and Viognier pairing And started focusing much more on the diversity of what could be produced in Virginia. Because certainly they can grow, oh gosh, there's uh, a blog that I think clocked 178 varieties, maybe more. Um, And so because of their warmer weather in the mid-Atlantic being close enough to the, the ocean and in the south, they certainly have disease pressure, but they can also get some ripening that some of the more northerly areas don't see all the time. Um and so if people are looking for a ripe, big, beautiful red, they can find it in Virginia. Um and again, they can find Rieslings in Virginia. They can find No, certainly they're not known for Rieslings. Um and they can't grow everywhere, but uh Virginia is just like any other region. They have fantastic winemakers who are pulling ahead and leading the charge. And then they have some places that just rely on foot traffic because they happen to be on a major tourist route <laughs> or right along a, a very busy highway. And they don't necessarily have to to change anything with their winemaking to sell their wine. So um, Virginia is definitely one to keep an eye on. There are so many places doing incredible wines. Um, But I think, again, they realized that they couldn't try to imitate another region with their marketing campaign or with their or with their winemaking. And now they're standing firmly on the Virginia is Virginia
1: ground. What is your take on, on that regions trying to market themselves with a grape that they think has some star power. So of course it's worked for the Willamette Valley because Pinot Noir it's worked for California because Cabernet let's talk about Riesling New York has certainly branded itself a place that that produces world class Riesling, and and that's absolutely true. But Riesling,
0: <laughs> it's such a y- tough y- you know? and It's such a beautiful grape, but yeah, it's a well. And I, I think for any region, so so Riesling in particular is is a tough one because of the the reputation that Rieslings earned with the. Uh, most of the american public in the 60s and 70s you know when i was a baby or not born yet and you certainly weren't <laughs> and you know so there were some rieslings that were marketing marketed in the united states that were just cloying and sweet and if people don't perceive themselves to enjoy sweet wine they will the minute they hear riesling they they won't even give it a chance um and certainly uh, one of the most eye-opening things for many of my friends and family has been the fact that dry Riesling even exists, that there are Rieslings that, are, that don't have uh, perceivable residual sugar. So that's, been, that's always fun. And I'm sure you experience it, that too when you introduce people to New York wines. But I think for any region, it, there, it's a double-edged sword, of course. There's um, the benefit to being known for something. However, all of the other wonderful things you do you will not be known for. Um, so, and, and I know that um, in the Finger Lakes that where they make lovely Cabernet Franc, beautiful Chardonnays, um, pretty Pinot Noir, you don't hear about those. You hear about Finger Lakes Riesling. And so um, that is the challenge is to make yourself known for something, but possibly not just known for one thing. Um, although I will say this, Because of the fact that New York was so successful in branding themselves as possibly the premier Riesling producer in North America, um, I feel like there has been a lot more investment in New York wines in general and in marketing New York wines in general so that people can become familiar with the other beautiful wines that are made there as well. So again, the, the Riesling boosted the visibility and now... Because of that, people are willing to um, give credibility to the other grapes that are grown there. And I think that's what these other regions are striving for, is that initial credibility. Because back in the day when I started in the wine industry, um, New York was under the other heading of Wine Spectator. You know, they definitely did not have their own section. So when that happened, I think that was such a breakout moment for all emerging regions throwing their hands in the air and cheering of yay we're not other we we are somebody and um and and we're somebody worth looking at and i think a lot of the other regions are striving for that and new york was just um on task to do it before some of the others
1: do you think that it's possible to market a region with a Diversity of grapes, as long as the quality is high. Because I, in in my experience in marketing, uh, when I was working for the Wine and Grape Foundation, I had a pretty good time with at least New York City trade sort of hooking them with a non Riesling wine. I mean, if anybody loves Riesling, it's sommeliers, right?
0: Yeah, they're they're willing to accept some of the you know and some of the weirder grapes <laughs> because well, they're new and, and interesting and have in a
1: story we know that we know that if anyone loves riesling it's sommeliers yeah. so the but the problem i experienced was they they just couldn't buy a lot of it because they couldn't move it right so if i could hook them with another grape whatever cabernet franc or Blau blaufränkisch or a sparkling wine maybe made from a hybrid grape something that was like new and exciting or just a little bit a little bit more rare it was much easier for for me to, you know, get that appointment and get somebody a placement, and then like later I could go back and maybe once they're familiar with this new producer, bring them the Riesling from that producer. So in my experience, it it this diversity of grapes beyond Riesling was a real asset in, in terms of opening people's eyes to what's going on with. Um you know, both very established wineries and some of these young and just new and exciting producers who are coming up
0: you're so right because you know we grape growers and winemakers wineries can grow uh as much as they want of grapes that that grow well in their climate, but if they don't have anybody to buy them, that becomes a big problem economically so you're you're absolutely right um you sometimes have to introduce certain grapes by introducing other grapes first. Um, this reminds me of a a situation that we have in Michigan. We currently have about 700 acres planted to Riesling in our vinifera grapes because it grows really well here and Michigan makes beautiful Rieslings. Um, but when we participated in FL Excursion in, um, 2019, which was a, uh, Was it? And this is, forgive me for for forgetting. I don't know if it was focused specifically on Rieslings or cool climate regions, but there was a lot of Riesling. Riesling. Okay. I was going to say, I think it was, but what was fun for us was not only bringing Rieslings from Michigan to show to the sommeliers, the press, the consumers, everybody who was participating, um, the other winemakers, but also some of the other things we did in Michigan. And so we brought a few Rieslings, but uh, that that satisfied that particular uh, criterion. But then we brought uh, Blaufränkisch, Gamay, Marquette, uh, Pinot Blanc, which before I moved to Michigan, I thought was possibly one of the most boring grapes on the planet. And Michigan does beautiful Pinot Blanc. Love it. And you know, so one, so and that's what the sommeliers went crazy for They went crazy for the, for the, the Gamay, the Michigan Gamay. Um, I don't know if we, we, and some of the Marquette they brought, we brought some Marquette Rosé and that's what they were, were like, wow, we didn't know Michigan did these things. And so I think, you know, again, having that exposure with one particular grape is great, but like you said, that's not always going to sell a huge quantity of wine to the general public. Um, so, introducing people to, to the other varieties that are produced there. And I, is, is, is very important. And, and that's what I think a lot of cool climate regions have going for them really, is that they can do so many things that hitching their, you know, horse to just one wagon (laughs) seems like it's counterproductive. Um, Virginia again has has capitalized on that and has said we're going to do these. They did some fantastic video uh, marketing on the um, diversity of the grapes that they grow there, and I think that's much better. Um, so now the onus on is on the winemaker to not just say, "Okay, well this is our grape. Now I have to grow it. Oh great, and and now I have to make it." Um, they can choose to make what grows well at their site what uh what what they're happy making um and that's likely in my opinion to yield better wine than kind of typecasting everybody in your your entire region to one grape um it can be a benefit for that initial get to know you period but um really i think the best way for any region to to gain notoriety is to make excellent wine to take what grows well there and make the best wine that they possibly can with it
1: what can you say in terms of ha- the kind of skill set that one needs for your job?
0: Oh my goodness, just uh, to roll with the punches, <laughs> because when you're traveling every every two weeks, you're going to get hung up in airports and snowed in places, and um, you know I, I I think being flexible is probably the the best thing because obviously uh, you you have to be flexible and have an open mind when you're tasting wine with customers. I mean, as a, a barrel salesperson specifically, my job is to go from cellar to cellar tasting wine all day long with people and helping evaluate. Um, so going into each situation with an open mind is imperative because you need to be not only open, uh, have an open palate for, um, what that particular winery is making. Um, you have to have an open mind of, uh, envisioning what you foresee for their direction. That's the other thing too, is um, tasting what's currently there and then imagining the possibilities that jive with what they tell you. Because sometimes a winemaker will tell you that they like a certain barrel or a certain barrel style. And then in the tasting, they will pick exactly the opposite kind of barrel that they talked about liking. And so that's why it's so important to taste in person with people, to make sure that you are on the same page with what they like and what they foresee for the winery. And then also to give some gentle advice sometimes to say, you know, as a wine drinker, I really like this and this is why. And have you considered doing that in your cellar? Um, Because there are a lot of winemakers. I was with a, a very prominent winemaker on Long Island at one point. And then I said, well, what do, what do you like about your current barrels? And he sat there. He started talking. And then he stopped. And he said, you know, I really don't know. And I really should taste through them more often with someone um, because we do all this tasting for fruit character, but we don't necessarily know exactly what we want from our oak program all the time. And so, um you know again, having tasting what's currently there, assessing it, being open minded about it, and then being open minded about the potential, um and making sure what you recommend is in line with what the winemaker expects, and where and sometimes maybe even pushing a little bit more to say, this could really go somewhere that I think you'd like, please consider it so um you know the other the other thing is is listening. I think whoever goes into any type of a sales position, if they're not a good listener, they should just leave immediately. <laughs> because um the the biggest favor any salesperson can do for their clients is to listen and thoroughly understand what they want before speaking, before making a recommendation. Um, because otherwise it's just a quick sale, and you, you're not building a long-term relationship with that client. And in the wine industry, it behooves you to do so because it's a small industry, and clients are loyal. They like working with someone who is a straight shooter and who understands really what they're going for. Um, that's the other thing that I think too is that it, it with that goes along with the open mind is the willingness to go to some of the emerging regions is half the battle. Sometimes a lot of these winemakers haven't had anybody come visit them and show that they're a viable, credible business, um, and that their business is desirable. And so, um, I would say that that's, that's probably the, the, the top. Um, finally, the one thing that I would tell people is you have to be self-driven. You cannot be a task-based person that needs a list, a to-do list handed to you, um, most of the positions, certainly outside of California, are covering a huge area of geography and multiple time zones. And so being able to organize yourself, decide how you're going to um, organize and prioritize the territory and how many times to call on people, when to call on them, what times of year makes sense, um, all require some self-discipline. So. Um, I would say, you know, open-mindedness, good listening skills and, uh, self-discipline are probably the absolute top things people need to be in this type of a sales role.
1: And what are just a few of the, like very detailed parts of the job? Like, should you be a wizard with spreadsheets? Should you learn to love the cold call? Stuff like that. Just some of those very granular, like work-like details.
0: Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, when I'm when I'm at home, basically, just to to give you a snapshot of the day in, a day in the life, is I get up with my kids who are now homeschooling and um, make our coffee, get down here and start working. I, I take a glance at my emails, respond to the fast the ones that are emergencies. Although, thank heavens, there are very few barrel emergencies, um, and then prioritize where I am at that, that time of the year. Do I need to send a mass email out to people letting them know that our, uh, that the price list has been released or that the barrels have shipped? Um, so much of the wine industry is seasonal. And so that is something people really have to get used to is you're working on a weird calendar that's all based around harvest. So, um, so you do, you do, you need to have a very, pretty decent knowledge of, um, technical stuff, like using a computer, IT things, because you'll probably have to troubleshoot by yourself out in the field, like I did this morning, Paul. <laughs> um, you know, things like that. Um, understanding spreadsheets, yes, because in any sales role, you typically have to um, understand exactly where you are with quantities of sales, as well as revenue and gross margin, all that stuff. Um, understanding customer relationship management software and applications. If uh, some companies will dictate to you what you have to use. Other times, if you're in a, a maybe a smaller company, you can dictate how you want to manage your customer information. But making sure that you have good records of um, what people have purchased in the past, what they liked about it, what you talked about on your last phone call. So when they call you and say, "Hey, was I going to put this barrel with Chardonnay or Cab Franc?" You can look back and say, "Oh yes, we discussed it. It's going in. You know, this is how you're doing it." Um, So yeah, I I would say, and planning travel. Planning travel is almost a full-time job in itself. I have actually have to secretly say that I I have enjoyed the little bit of a break that I've gotten from it on the whole COVID situation because uh, planning travel and managing hotels, managing plane tickets every two weeks um, for most of the year is really a lot of work. In and of itself. So you can't be afraid to plan your own travel. Um, I know there are a lot of people who haven't traveled much, and if they have, they've someone else has planned it. Um, that's not typically a luxury that happens with this type of a sales role. So for the last 20 years, I've been in charge of planning my own travel. Um, except for the one time that I did allow somebody in California try to plan my travel, and she had me flying from New York through San Francisco and then to Europe. And that was the end of that. <laughs> so, um, you know, so it, it it's I would say that that those little details and that goes along with the self-discipline is understanding how many tiny details you have to remember and if you can't remember them you have to write them down and organize them somehow um are very very important because um it will lend to your own education of clients and the products that you're talking about, but also um, give you more credibility when you're talking to people is that you can remember those those little details and refer back to them um, so that every time it's not like a cold call. Um, your mentioning of cold calls was very good because many times I'll, I'll find new wineries that I didn't know existed until I'm in the territory. So of course, I'm going to walk in the door and see if I can talk to the winemaker. Um, I'm pretty gentle about it. I don't ever barge in demanding to see anyone because I don't like to be called on without an appointment. But sometimes timing is just right and you end up meeting someone who's like, "Hey, it's so great to meet you. Why don't you taste through my entire cellar with me right now?" <laughs> and then if if time allows, great. Um, so it, again, that open mind and not being not taking things personally because if someone says, "No, I absolutely do not want to meet with you right now." Are you crazy? um, not taking it personally, adding them to your, your mailing list and saying, Hey, maybe we can meet at a a different time with a set appointment. So, um, you know, being, being open to rolling with the punches and not getting too upset about any particular thing, whether it's a delayed flight or getting kicked out by someone who didn't expect you. Um, it's, it's usually never personal or anything that's the end of the world.
1: Well, Gina, I always look forward to spotting you in the crowd at whatever the thing is.
0: Yeah, well, we get back to doing that, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So until the next thing, thank you very much for chatting with me today. I I find your career and and how you've built it to be inspiring. And I think that any current or aspiring wine industry professional who listens to this uh, will agree. So thank you again.
0: Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. And um, if anybody listening has any questions about doing anything like this, I am more than happy to answer any questions. Um, And you can find me on social media. I have a website and it's very easy to get in touch. And I'm more than happy to coach anybody who is interested in making this kind of career switch.
1: All right. Well, Shout out again to Len Thompson, founder of The Cork Report. Also to Dave Miller, composer and guitarist of our intro and outro music. Check him out. Gina, whatever that next thing is, I don't know, but uh, can't come soon enough. My best to your family. Be safe, be happy, during the holidays, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Back to you soon.